all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning. I'm a professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today I'll be here with you answering your questions about any healthcare topic that you might be dealing with. Maybe it's a new diagnosis or a new symptom that you don't quite uh, have a hold on yet. Maybe it's a new medication that you're taking that's having some side effects or Maybe it's just any question that you have about what could affect your health or the health of someone near and dear to you. You are free to send us an email. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. I hope everybody's having a great Wednesday. It's nice uh, after that little, I wouldn't even call it a rain. I think most places just got just a little bit of a tease. We need some rain. So uh, praying for that uh, every day. That hopefully we'll get some that we need. So I hadn't quite seen it this dry in a long time, but um, but I hope that uh, the, a little bit of cool off there. It was getting to be a little muggy earlier in the week. I uh, hope everybody's uh, enjoying that and taking the chance to get out and get around uh, since we have uh, sort of Southern California weather right now, except for not quite as warm. Um, but that's an excellent opportunity for you to get out and maybe increase the amount of physical activity that you're doing uh, that you can do. And uh, it's an excellent time of year to do that. We've got our first caller on the line. We're going to go to Sue from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. I'd like to ask you a question, Dr. Jimmy. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Pretty good. It's you flat side. I was reading some old medical literature and came across this term, arcuate uterus, and I've never heard of that before. A-R-C-U-A-T-E. What is that? Yeah, so there can be either um, different... Um, um, uh, let's see, different uh, types of of uh, sizes and different orientations of the uterus, and then there's also, you know, sometimes you can you can have a term called a bicornate uterus. So it's just a little bit different type of it, and it can be associated with different things. You know, if there's one area that I am the weakest in, that's OBGYN. So I don't know all the complications of this, but the arcuate uterus does have some you know, implications uh, for different things. But, you know, just like any part of the body, um, every everybody has a little bit different orientation and anatomy. Um, but basically, it's just a, a uh, uh, shape of the uterus is a little bit different. And I don't know, I don't know all the implications there. But it's uh, it usually I don't think this is one of them, if I remember correctly, that causes a lot of problems. It's just a little bit different in uh, orientation of the interior of the uterus. So it would make getting pregnant difficult, probably, huh? You know, I don't know. Um, this would be a great question for our Friday program um, for Southern Remedy um, um, 
for women's health issues. But, I, you know, I, I don't think it does off the top of my head. But again, this is the big area where I am not very good at uh, fertility issues or, uh, you know, uh, complex GYN things. But I don't think if I remember correctly, I'm going way back, Sue, on this one. Uh, I don't think that that's one of the ones that that can cause problems. It is just a minor variant of the the shape of the interior of the uterus, but I don't think that it does. But again, don't quote me on that. Well, thank you for your help. I appreciate that. Yes, ma'am. And thank you for calling. Yeah. Delivered as a third year medical student, I delivered with somebody in the room watching me and making sure I'm doing everything correctly, of course. Uh, 15 babies, uh, and but I, I, I knew that OBGYN was not for me because I would want to go with the baby. Like I delivered the baby, and I would quickly forget about the mom being in the room and want to go with the baby. And that that's when I, I thought, you know what? Pediatrics and internal medicine, that maybe that's for me, particularly the pediatric portion, because I want to go with the baby. I tell people that story, uh, medical students, and say, you know, I just wanted to go with the ball. I just wanted to just leave uh, mom where she was. And I, that's, I got, I remember getting scolded by the, by the, uh, obstetrical G, uh, GYN staff and, and residents saying, Hey, you got to stay here. They'll take care of the baby. And it's like, no, I want to go with the baby. Um, let's go to David from Horn Lake. Good morning, David. Uh, good morning. I guess it's about Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, uh, I got several questions about the subject. Number one, uh, is there a, um, a legitimate test to determine whether or not you have Alzheimer's. And the second question I got, some of the TV ads, they advertise a nutritional supplement, and they kind of imply that if you buy it, and it's not cheap, that it's kind of will help your memory. Is that uh, snake oil truth or not? And the third question is, um, is there a good place that, um, that you can donate your body so they can do medical research and maybe they can find a disease uh, maybe find a cause for that disease, donate your body, brain, or whatever for medical research, for treatment or whatnot. And number four, is there a drug drug trials available, uh, uh, studies in Alzheimer's, and what are the environmental versus genetic factors? Because uh, my family has a, a real strong history of neurological diseases. Yeah, that's great. I know great. that's a little You, you just let them roll there, David. That's good. So, uh, yeah, so Alzheimer's dementia is a type of dementia, and it basically, if you can think of the brain as all this wiring that has to fit together and it has to work properly, what happens is you get neurofibrillary tangles and plaques, and plaques is just excess material that's in there. And there's a beta amyloid protein is the type of protein that causes those plaques. And it interferes with particularly uh, some of the areas that can cause some of the symptoms of dementia. Now, there are many, many types of dementia, though. So there is multifocal uh, infarct dementia. If you have uh, some like small areas of strokes that may not even be apparent over time, you can have dementia that's associated with de- any kind of damage to blood vessels, like the damage that occurs from untreated high, pr- high blood pressure, untreated diabetes, or cholesterol problems. So, you know, just because somebody gets dementia doesn't necessarily mean that it's Alzheimer's, but Alzheimer's in particular we're getting better at um, at diagnosing it. So the answer to your to your first question about diagnosis, 
There is a test that, particularly in families that have a predisposition, that can tell if you are at an increased risk of it. But as far as like a really early test that we could take maybe in our 20s or 30s, there's a couple of things that are very promising right now, but they're not prime time to use on everybody. However, if you know that you have several people in your family that have had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, and by the way, to make that diagnosis, really you have to exclude those other things. So if the, you know there's a lot of uh, blood tests involved, and there's not, again, there's not a blood test that says, okay, you have Alzheimer's, here you go, but you have to sort of cross off the list those other things that could cause dementia. So that's the first thing. Um, as far as a diet to uh, to uh, you know things that you can prevent it with all those things that's really a lot more like you mentioned on the snake oil side. Um, honestly, it, the better your diet is, and then uh, this is you know I always go back to sort of a Mediterranean diet is a good example because that's one of the better ones um, that is protective against dementia. So it really makes sense. So if you think about it, if you're eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and a lot of uh, you know, non-processed foods. Uh, you, if your fat content comes from plant sources rather than animals, if you eat lean meats, you know, I tell people if you're going to eat meat, eat something that swims or flies. Um, that's better for you, um, along with exercise. So all of those things are better for our cardiovascular health. And remember, all those little neurons, all that wiring in the brain has blood flow that feeds it all these nutrients. So if you're taking better care of your blood vessels in all parts of the body, it's going to be better for your brain health. And that includes a healthy diet and exercise. Any kind of supplement, none of them have really shown in randomized controlled trials to show any kind of benefit. Uh, It's just like us, us humans to try to pick out one thing and try to sell it and say, this is going to cure all your ailments. Uh, or, uh, you know, prevent you from getting Alzheimer's. Um, you know, as, in, as far as like test or donating your body to science to, to, uh, to help with that, so there's two ways you can do that. Now, some of it is, you know, just in general people do that, and uh, thankfully that's a great way to further science and training of individuals who are either going directly into the medical field or in those medical fields that are um, uh, those medical professions that, that are uh, have to do with that so that they can know the exact anatomy. There's only so much we can do with simulation and with CT scans and MRIs and those kinds of things. But that may be more specific in that if you have Alzheimer's, that there may be uh, there may be some trials and some studies that are looking for people that do have that. And then the last thing that you mentioned, you know, is there some trials that you can participate in about emerging therapies or emerging diagnosis? And the answer is yes. And the best place I know of locally is the MIND Center, the M-I-N-D Center at UMMC. So the MIND Center deals with uh, not just Alzheimer's or other dementias, but all things that sort of affect our brains and affect how we think and how we behave, uh, all the things that our minds do as we get older. But they have access to a lot of those clinical trials and a lot of these, because we, you know, you want as many people as possible to contribute to that, uh, to participate in it. Um, it doesn't have to be that you're donating your body after you die. A lot of those are um, either imaging trials or different medications that come out. But that's the best way to to get in touch with it because that's a center 
locally that that deals with that. And there are other centers in other parts. You know, Horn Lake. You can may want to check out uh, Memphis. Um, you know, I, I don't know the exact uh, names or locations of those, but any of the academic medical centers in Memphis, they're going to have access to that. So I would I would ask about that. A lot of times you can benefit personally by having, you know, scans of your brain that are uh, as part of a study that's free to you so that you don't have to pay that. It doesn't go to your insurance. It's paid by the study itself. So it's it's very beneficial to you individually. So I think I answered for those four questions. Did I miss one, David? Uh, can I ask one more question? Sure, make it five. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> I'm going to load you up. Uh, uh, On the medication side, they put my mom on Aricet and Exelon, and that's been Uh years ago, and I know they've come out with some other medications and whatnot. But late-night television, I ought not watch it, but there's a a thing on there called stem cell activators, and it's supposed to be this daggum doctor. And they do have a... You have to look very, very closely. They do have a little disclaimer. They show for about two seconds. Uh, you know, all, the results vary or all the results, but they got a, uh, a, a whole list of diseases of, parent, uh, of uh, uneducated laymen implying that they can cure anything. Can you, do you have any, uh, uh, it's all natural stem cell activators. Do you have any information about that? Yeah, I've seen this too, David. I, so it's basically what they're saying is that stem cells are cells in our body that can become anything. So they can help rejuvenate certain areas. Um, we do have applications of this in different diseases that we use either a person's own stem cells or somebody else's stem cells. We can harvest those stem cells. We can isolate them from the bloodstream now so that you don't have to go into the bone marrow or other places a lot of times to do that. But basically, these are cells that can become other things, other tissues. And the theory is, though, with what you described, is they're saying that they can give you certain substances and stimulate your own stem cells to, you know, repopulate the brain and and repair that kind of stuff. That's not exactly how the science works, so it is a misappropriation of that. So that's very, it's in my opinion, that's pretty misleading. And that's why you were really good to catch that. That little two-second blip that says results vary is their way of covering themselves uh, because they don't really, it's not really that, you know, it's not that big mind-shattering. If you think about it, um, if it was very, anything that, that people say, hey, this is a cure-all, and if it really was, it wouldn't be, you know, it would be out there. It would be, uh, we wouldn't have a lot of people with Alzheimer's. I think one day we'll get there, and stem cells may be a way to do it. But if you think about it, the brain is going to have to lay down new, if this were true, it would have to grow new, new nerve cells and then transfer the function of all those damage areas to the new nerve cells. Stem cells don't help other cells get better they just become tissue. That's like the early form, some of the earliest forms that can become any cell in our body. So it, it makes sense if, you know, I think in the future, 20, 30 years even, we may be growing thing, all kinds of different organs or tissues out of skin cell, uh, stem cells. But as far as like replacing the brain itself, that's not like replacing heart tissue or a kidney um, that's very different. And when you replace those cells, you sort of lose all the things that went along with those original ones. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, uh, one more. Uh, uh, the blood, 
I, let me get my tongue back in my head. Sure. The blood-brain barrier. Uh, years ago, my mother had, had uh, Alzheimer's dementia, and I, I really did some research on that, and, and uh, uh, I had a doctor tell me that um, uh, I was living in a dream world. This is as good as it gets. There's no cure and whatnot. Anyway, uh, have they made any improvements about the medication being, being able to get past the blood-brain barrier? Some medications do. It depends on a number of things. Size is one of them. So if it's a bigger medication, um, not not like what you take, but I mean, you know, when molecularly, once it breaks down and it gets distributed in the bloodstream, a lot of them are just too big to do that. And that's to protect our brains from all kinds of different things. But some of them do cross the blood-brain barrier and they get into those cells. Now, um, you do have to be careful. It, just because it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier you don't, I'm getting my tongue tied now. Um, that that doesn't mean that it can't affect what goes on in the brain. So some of the things that happen in the bloodstream, you can change what happens there, and then the nutrients or different um, chemicals that are in the brain, you can change that, So if that makes sense. But, yeah, there's lots of medications that cross that. We have some antibiotics that we treat, meningitis, for instance, that do cross into that blood-brain barrier. So it's not like a you know, really hard barrier between the bloodstream and the brain. There are certain things that could pass through that. Uh, I'm a, one more question I'm going to set up. Have they found a gene that they can, you know, like the DNA test or whatever, uh, uh, RNA DNA test, and find out if you've got a gene that actually causes Alzheimer's dementia? Yeah, they're pretty close to that. Again, it's it's sort of hard to predict um, just because you have a gene if it's actually going to be expressed, and that's sort of the case with Alzheimer's. Just because you have the gene doesn't mean you're actually going to get Alzheimer's, although there is a huge, as you just said, it's a huge genetic proponent of that. Even better than that is family history, though. So if you've got three or four people in your family, if that were me, you know, if I had three or four people that had Alzheimer's, I would try to do everything possible to help protect my blood vessels, like we talked about earlier, and not try to do any kind of damage to my brain in any way uh, over time. But yeah, they do. They're they're identifying that, and that's part of that testing. That hopefully we'll get to the point where we say, "Hey, you're at high risk. Let's think about some things that could predict the, uh, that could uh, protect your brain." And some of the newer medications that are in development, again, not quite prime time, are to help shut down that process of that beta amyloid protein being laid down in those plaques. So, um, again, I, if I were you and concerned about it, I would go find out the experts, again, the people that are in the geriatric departments that are at major medical centers that are participating in these big clinical trials and on the cutting edge of things, and uh, check that out because that's going to be the best information that you can get. All right, thank you so much. You have a good day. All right, thank you, David. Wow, lots of questions there. I think we covered about six on Alzheimer's. That was pretty good. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your calls and questions about any kind of healthcare issue that you might have. You can email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. And if you can't catch us at our live time, then when we broadcast, you can always catch us later. Uh, through a podcast. That's right. You can go to any of your podcasting apps. Just search for Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Uh, or you can go to archive programs directly on our website, mpbonline.org, and just search for that. Sometimes you 
catch a program. I do this from time to time with our other um, uh, MPB online programs, uh, I think radio programs during the week. Uh, if I didn't quite catch something that happened earlier, sometimes I'll go and log in and uh, catch the earlier parts of it so I can hear the whole discussion. But it's amazing all the different ways that we have here at MPB um, Studio to to get those things out to you uh, in real time. Uh, hopefully that's the best way to do it. But if we can't, we can always go back and do that. So I'd encourage you to check that out. It's a, a great resource to have. You know, there's lots of different things people come in for. You know, this is the time of year people are shifting. We mentioned maybe getting outside and getting a little bit more active. Um, uh, muscle aches and pains can be one. And it's more one of the more common things that I see in clinic. Uh, it can be a chronic injury or it might be something that happens acutely uh, after um, a um you know, an injury that you might have. Um, But it doesn't have to be. And muscle cramps is one of those that always come up. Some people come in, they're like, hey, can you check my potassium or my magnesium or some other thing for having muscle cramps? And it is a very common symptom. Usually labs are normal with muscle cramps. People want to know why do I have them? One of the most common things is either uh, muscles that aren't used to doing what they normally do, Uh, So sort of a weekend warrior type thing. You can certainly have cramps after the activity. You can have cramps during the activity. It doesn't necessarily mean that your potassium is low or magnesium is low. I know a lot of people will be like, quick, I've got to drink three quarts of Gatorade right quick. It's not exactly how it works, and it's much more preventative, preventative. Um, you know, I've, we've talked a long time ago about some of the, the things for, particularly for high school athletes. And I know a lot of people swear about pickle juice and mustard packs and all that kind of stuff. Just the physiology just doesn't work that fast. So it's much better to do things beforehand that are healthy. Again, eating a healthy diet. I know I, I, y'all probably get tired of hearing me say that, but that really does make a lot of sense. And then staying hydrated. And you don't have to, particularly if the activity is less than about 45 minutes, water is perfectly fine. You don't have to drink Gatorade or Powerade. If you're out in the hot sun for prolonged periods past 45 minutes, certainly fine to do that with uh, a drink that has uh, sodium and potassium in it. There's multiple ones out there. Uh, Sugar, too, is important because that's the way you absorb um, sodium or salt into your body that you need, that you lose during those times. Uh, But it's really important to be prehydrated. So making sure that you um, are drinking plenty of water before the activity and not really waiting to that point. And water intake is something that we neglect a lot of times and certainly can cause things like muscle cramps. So something that's very, again, very common. Uh, you know, I do check a lot of uh, labs, particularly on people that are on medication, say, that can decrease the amount of potassium or magnesium in their body. Uh, but uh, most of the time, those are normal. And um, sometimes you just never find out for that. But the good way to treat it is to, again, drink plenty of water to give that muscle a little bit of a break. And massage can sometimes help if it's not too painful to uh, to massage that out. You can do that yourself or have somebody else do that for you. Or, um, you know, just rest uh, for a couple of days and then easing back into the activity. Um, not jumping into activities right off the bat. That's always a good thing. There's a lot of debate between warm up or warm down or both uh, about what works. Probably all of those. And if you think about it, I like to watch my pets, you know, 
my dog this morning when she was uh, awoken by me uh, and gave me the look like, how dare you do that to me? I was in such a good uh, sleep. Um, yet what do they do when they first wake up? They almost always stretch. And uh, before they, uh, when they get up from outdoor activities, and as they get older, they do more of that. I think we should probably do the same. You know, it makes sense to do that, to sort of stretch things out before you do an activity, and then sort of ease into it as you go. And then it's always nice. It's a good idea and actually makes sense after you've exercised those muscles to sort of warm down, to uh, not just stop abruptly. That's something I I had to do uh, to learn how to do with... uh, uh, over time, I you know used to just uh, go at it and go run uh, without warming up uh, appropriately and warming down afterwards. But it does make a huge difference. So, a couple of things as you get back out there on the road, um, and uh, and again, great time to increase your physical activity. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions, calls, and emails about any kind of um, medical issues that you might have. Uh, No, everybody gets put on medication sometimes. Maybe you didn't quite understand why you were put on that. We are here to answer those questions. Maybe it's a side effect of a medication that you didn't quite realize was going to happen, and you want to make sure it's uh, attributable to that medication or maybe something else. All these things and more, no matter what they are, this is the time to call in if you have those questions. Got a couple of email questions here uh, that are pertinent. One is about levothyroxine. So that's a long name. Uh, That is a uh, hormone, a a synthetic hormone that is used to uh, treat hypothyroidism. So our thyroid gland sits in the front part of our neck, uh, sort of right on each side. It looks like a little butterfly. Um, on the on uh, across our the front part of the neck, it's a soft tissue. It's not the hard part of your neck. In fact, the proper way to feel it is actually sort of. I always tell patients, "Hey, I'm not going to choke you, but you sort of have to wrap your fingers around from behind on both sides of their neck to feel it." And sometimes, well, the function of that gland in our body is uh, it's an endocrine gland, so it basically produces uh, a substance that controls our metabolism. So it, uh, the, the thyroid hormones that it produces uh, help our bodies sort of regulate that so that they're not acting too fast and burning too much calories or not too slow. And if, it's, um, if you lose the functioning of that gland, then you can have a lot of problems. So the hypothyroidism, not producing enough or, uh, of that hormone, would cause some symptoms like dry skin, hair falling out, particularly the latter third of your eyebrows. Uh, You can have sluggish memory. Uh, You can have uh, nail changes with that, too. You can uh, gain weight, Uh, all kinds of different things. And if it goes on long enough, it can cause even more severe problems. Thankfully, it's pretty easy to diagnose that. And um, you have to sort of figure out, you know, the cause, too, although most of the time it's sort of an autoimmune process. And then once you diagnose that, it's pretty easy to treat because we just give the hormone back. And it is a pill that you can take once a day um, called Synthroid. And Synthroid is sort of the brand name for it. Now, thyroid hormones are a little bit uh, particular about when you do it. Most medications, you know, if you look at the, the bottle, the pharmacist will put on there, hey, take with food or take on an empty stomach. And there are very good reasons for doing that. Some of them have to do with potential side effects that you might have if you take them on an empty stomach, for instance. But some of them may have to do with 
how well you absorb that medication and how well the medication works. And some of them do better with food and some of them do, or even types of food like fatty foods. Um, But some of them like Synthroid really work best if you take them by themselves, even if you're taking other medication and before eating. So usually about 30 minutes before the morning meal is a great time to take it. And you really don't need to take any other medications uh, or eat within about 30 minutes of doing that. And that's, again, because of how it works in your body. And it can be bound up pretty easily and throw off how well it's working uh, in your body. And it's a very long-acting uh, medication, so it's you know pretty pretty safe. Doesn't really have any side effects to it. Um, but the question is, can you take a generic form of that? And that's the levothyroxine. And an interesting thing is, most generic medications work really well. Uh, you know, I prescribe a lot of generic medications for diabetes, for cholesterol, for um, Um, high blood pressure, and they work just fine. Antibiotics the same way. Some of them, though, in particular, the uh, levothyroxine or the Synthroid, that's one that really works better if you take the brand name for it. Now, you do want to, you know, I know some people that do just fine on it, and that's okay. But if if you're having problems with that and you're seeing your doctor, uh, you might want to ask them, should we change to the to the brand name? Uh, and most of the time, the copay is pretty low, depending on what your uh, what your insurance co- insurance is. But that's that uh, sort of a nuance for that. But it does matter when you take it, and sometimes that gets a little bit ignored. Uh, certainly, shift work can change that too. But generally speaking, it doesn't have to be that morning meal. But that just you know. For most of us, that that uh, is probably a bit the best time to take it. But 30 minutes before eating without any other medications and being pretty regimented about when you do that, it doesn't have to be to the to the minute or even the hour, but about the same time of day with doing that. So if you have hypothyroidism, if you're having trouble in regulating that, uh, they will normally draw labs about six to eight weeks after changing a dose or starting the medication to try to get those levels right. And it can take a long time, too, because of how the medication works. So it's, sometimes it's um, it's about six months or so to get regulated on it. But a little bit of, uh, of uh, information there about hypothyroidism. Let's go to Mammy from Oklahoma. Yeah, this is Mamie in Oklahoma, Mississippi. Yes, ma'am. Uh, in 2004, I had my thyroid moved because I had about 10 nodules on them. They weren't malfunctioning, but they were removed uh, to prevent them coming back and possibly being malignant. Um, I got on Thinwatt, the brand name, and then it was really expensive, and then I changed over to the generic brand, and for some reason, that didn't work. Um, I had faint spells with it, and sometimes I had dizzy spells, but anyway, I went back to the Synthroid, and the problem is I'm on Medicare and drug plans, and it's quite expensive. They don't cover it. Yeah, had, is there any other is there any other solution to this? Not not really. That's going to work, work really well. I didn't mention one other, which is actually desiccated thyroid hormone, and I would not recommend that as an alternative if somebody brings that up, just because um, 
it's not that consistent in how it works. Even if you if you take the same dose over you know uh, daily, it's it. I've just seen a lot more variability with that. But what you might want to do is if they haven't tried to fill out a um, a prior authorization saying that you cannot take the generic form of it, a lot of times an insurance company will cover it. It's just a little bit more work on the physician to fill that out. But I do that for several different medications that, uh, you know, uh, the insurance won't cover. Another thing to consider is to go over with your pharmacist. You know, Medicare Part D is the, the part of Medicare that covers prescription drugs. And there are many different plans that you can choose from with that. It might be that you can choose a different plan that would have better coverage for that and any other medication. And your pharmacist should have that information to plug all those things in to give you an idea uh, when it comes up time to, you know, when you have the option to do that. But those are the two things that I would try to do if you if you haven't already, just to uh, talk with your physician about maybe a prior authorization form that, that you can send to the, um, to the uh, insurance company. And sometimes I have to talk to them. Uh, they have something called a peer-to-peer process where the physician can talk to somebody at the insurance company and say, hey, this person really needs to be on the, the brand medication rather than on the generic. Okay. Is there any difference in the brand and the generic? It is a little bit. So it, it has to do not necessarily with the amount of hormone that's in there, and it's all levothyroxine. It's usually in the carrier. So it's what they sort of package it, if you think about that, in the pill, like not the packaging in the box or the bottle, but the other components in there. And, you know, those are the inert ingredients, the things don't really, that, but they're just carrying the medication, the levothyroxine. All right. Well, thank you so much. I yes. appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. We're going to go to Gail from Crystal Springs. Good morning, Gail. Hi, good morning. My question to you is, I'm not a big water drinker in the mornings, and I take my pill and wait 30, 45 minutes before I eat anything. But could I possibly take my thyroid pill with orange juice? Yeah, I think that's – so, you know, we've talked about, like, optimally what to do, right? So I do have, I tell my patients, okay, look, if, if you, if, if orange juice works better for you, let's do that and let's see what the levels are, you know, on the blood when we, when we check those after making a change like that. So, you know, six weeks or so. And if it's, if we're not given enough and usually that's with a high TSH, we'll increase the dose. But generally speaking, you can overcome some of those inter- some of the interactions. Now, I certainly wouldn't be saying to people, "Hey, take your calcium supplement with levothyroxine or synthroid." That's a bad idea because you won't get any or very little synthroid in your body if you do that. But if you change from water to to orange juice, I would say that's probably okay. And then we can check the levels, and then we can make adjustments in the amount that you're giving. Uh, that's probably the best thing hey, to do. That's a great idea. And you might tell the, the lady that just called that I could not take the, um, the, the I couldn't take the generic. generic. Yeah. Yeah, that's a common uh, one. It, and they, my Medicare picked it right up. 
Exactly. And that's that's why I said, you know, it's really important to check out which Part D is in dog plan that you have, because that is um, there are many out there and they're all a little different. And it's and your pharmacist is going to be the person that can help you out. So if you just say, hey, you know, it's that time of year, I'm thinking about changing plans for next year. Could you plug it in with X plan or Y plans? Or could you look at my, a lot of the pharmacists that are better at it to say, go to the pharmacy, go to your pharmacy, choose the most, the oldest person there uh, and say, hey, can you help me out with this um, in person and say, you know, I, I want to know if you can look at my medications and sort of find this out. Now, a few clinics, our clinics like this at, at uh, UMMC that has, um, um, our MedPeds clinic has it. We have a clinical pharmacist with us, and she always has uh, pharmacy residents and students with her. So we have a, that resource in our clinic that can do that. But that's very common is I'll say, hey, can you look at their medication list for me and to find out which plan might be the best one? Uh, but your local pharmacist has the same skill to do that, and they, they should be able to do it. But that they can help out, and like you said, you may find a plan that is just fine for your medications. But it, don't just tell them one medication. Tell them every medication that you're prescribed because you got to think about the total bill, right? That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. But that's good information. I, yeah. I, I would say try it with orange juice, see how it works, and if, if the, uh, the amount needs to be, the, the dose of it needs to be changed, that's what I would do. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for calling, Gail. You know, thyroid levels, they, they differ with time. Uh, sometimes we diagnose this uh, when a patient's a child, and they have different thyroid hormone needs at different parts of their life. So, uh, you know, as you grow, you need a little bit more. Uh, you need a little bit less when you're older. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're of childbearing age, you have different requirements, or if you're pregnant, you have different requirements. So all of those things are sort of tricky. Endocrinologists or the, the really smart people, they're some of the smartest people I know are endocrinologists, and they excel in this. So any kind of gland in the body like that, an endocrine gland, that's what they specialize in. So most of the time I can treat hypothyroidism myself. Most physicians can. It's, it's not rocket science but if you have problems i'm you know i have a pretty low threshold to call my my endocrinology friends and say hey i'm going to phone a friend on this who's uh, a little bit smarter than me in this area and they can help out so help your physician out too sometimes you know we think we can do it all and we don't need, you don't need to see anybody else but that may be a case if you're running into any, any kind of problem not just endocrinology but any kind of other problem uh there are specialists out there that can do that and uh they can help us out uh, in making those diagnoses. This is uh, Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions and calls and emails about any kind of healthcare topic that you have. Got another email that I wanted to mention here, and uh, it's about vaping and cannabis. So the question is, does vaping can- cannabis using a vaporizer with advanced temperature controls damage the lungs, and if so, to what extent? So apparently, there's so a little bit of background on this. There was a uh, there was a program uh, that Sanjay Gupta put out um, uh, on some cannabis treatment for cancer patients, and I believe it was in Israel, somewhere in the Middle East. And um, they were using purportedly a device that delivers the active ingredient of cannabis with a lower temperature. 
So when you talk about vaping, basically whatever substance you're using is in a liquid form, and you have to vaporize that so that you can breathe that into your lungs to deliver that material to the bloodstream. That's how vaping works. And, and unfortunately, the most of the commercial vaping devices, that's a really high temperature. So you're talking about 170 degrees. So if you think about it, you're applying that vapor to your lungs at a very high temperature, and that can do a lot of damage. So we see a lot of thermal injuries to the lungs, and uh, it looks like a little honeycomb is what it looks like because of all the tissue gets burned out. It's very sensitive tissue, and remember, the normal lung tissue is very thin so that you can transfer transfer uh, gaseous molecules. So you can transfer carbon dioxide and oxygen. That's really small molecules. You know, we talked about the blood-brain barrier earlier. That's a much thicker membrane. But your lung tissue and the alveoli, it is very thin, and it is very sensitive to lots of different things and injuries, um, like vaping, uh, 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 water vapor that at high temperature, basically. Now, the other thing is it, it depends on the substance you're using, too. So some of it can't be delivered to your lungs unless it gets even higher than that. So if it is an oily material, those have to be at even higher. Now, I'm not personally familiar with the temperature adjustment of some of those devices, but I would bet, you know, and, and there was some discussion in the email about the trichomes, which are the, the parts of the cannabis plant, the, sort of the hairs uh, on the plant that um, Felder's probably going to correct us later on that. But um, that's that's where a lot of those substances are. If you think about a tomato plant, they have those hairs on them. So that's that's sort of similar to that. But even then, the, the uh, THC or the CBD is an oil and it its viscosity is really thick and you really have to get the temperature up to get it in the water vapor. Uh, so if I was wanting to deliver something like that, I would not do it to the lungs at a high temperature um, because that is not how that lung tissue was designed. You can deliver a lot of substances to the bloodstream that way, but you're going to damage your lungs in the process. And if you are going to do that, I think an alternative method, if somebody were to use cannabis or CBD, um, certainly an oral route is a better route to take with that. Um, I would be very hesitant to do that, even if it says temperature controls, just because those substances are much more oily and bigger substances that need a higher temperature to vaporize them. Um, and that, again, that is just, we see a lot of that of young patients that damage their lungs um, irreversibly by doing that. Um, I should bring up too, you know, if you have other damage to your lungs, if you have COPD or you were a smoker for a long period of time, even if you don't have symptoms, that's probably not a good idea to switch over to something like that for a medical reason to deliver that material. And uh, I think you need to think long and hard about that uh, before you do it. Because again, those tissues are very small, uh, very thin, and they're designed to allow for the exchange of gases across them. Um, and that when you just when you elevate the temperature, when you have substances that normally wouldn't get that far down in your lungs, that's just a bad idea and can cause a lot of problems. So be very careful with that. 
Um, I I really you know discourage people from doing that if they're if they're wanting to go to the route of cannabis or uh, for for whatever um, medical condition that they have or CBD oil for that uh, for that matter. And uh, a lot of people will say too that vaping is safer than smoking. Uh, not always so. So that's not an alternative. I know a lot of people quit smoking that way and vape, but still not the best thing for your lungs. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank all of our callers and emailers for uh, calling in. You can always email us by sending it to remedy at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is supported in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and, of course, generous listeners just like you. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.